Well, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is episode number 410, and we are continuing our series, The Backpack Hunt Breakdown. In the previous two episodes of this series, we've talked about an elk hunt, a sheep hunt, and now today our guest is our good friend, Dioni, who is an absolute mule deer slayer. And we break down a hunt that he had in October. It was a rifle mule deer hunt in Idaho. And this was not intentional when selecting these guests or these episodes, but weather played another big factor in Dioni's hunt, as it has in the previous hunts that we've had as part of this series. But there's more than just weather and dealing with adverse conditions. Hopefully you've heard in the previous episodes the format of this series, how we take a particular hunt and break it down into different sections or categories to really understand not only the hunt story, but really the decision-making process, some of the consequential moments of the hunt, and so much more. We've gotten a lot of great feedback on this podcast series so far, so thank you to everyone who has shared that. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. Today's episode will also not disappoint. It's a great one that I'm excited to share with you. Speaking of feedback, if you have any questions or comments or any feedback for us, you can always send an email to podcast at exomountgear.com. If you have a question for a future Q&A episode, you can also leave that question by going to the show description and looking for the link that says leave a message and you can use whatever device you're on right now to leave us an audio message for those Q&A episodes. Finally, I just want to remind you guys, we don't have any sponsors or advertisers or do any advertising for the show, so it only grows when you support it and share it. If you can share it with a friend, that'd be great directly. If you can leave a rating or review in whatever podcast app that you're using, that would also help us. Hit pause and do that right now if you can, and then come back and here is our discussion for today's podcast in the Backpack Hunt Breakdown Series with our good friend, Dione. Dione, welcome to the show, man. Glad to uh, chat with you again. Yeah, good to visit with you. You were definitely one of the guys when this series came to mind that uh, I was like, man, I hope I hope Dione has, if I pitch him this idea, I hope he has a particular hunt that comes to mind. And thankfully, uh, thankfully you did kind of right off the bat. So I've heard yeah. a 30,000 foot view of this hunt, uh, but don't know a lot of the details. And I'm excited to do kind of the deep dive breakdown with you, um, you know, for for this series, we kind of have these categories and it starts with planning. So we'll start there before the hunt itself, like what went into the timing, the area, the planning, you know, everything leading up to the hunt itself. Like what are some, uh, some notable thoughts just to kick this things off? Yeah. So as, as much as anything, I'm, I'm a prolific scouter. I, uh, as I, I enjoy scouting as much as I do hunting. And I really, really, really like to find uh, a number of animals uh, before season that I would like to try to target. Um, the year we're talking about, so this is 2020. And I had a rough go that year scouting. I, I got out quite a bit um, for having, you know, two young kids. I got out as much as a, as much as most, most people's wives would let them anyway. <laughs> and, uh, I, every year I try and I, I go to a handful of places that I've, I've hunted and, and been to before. And I try and get a handful of new places. And like th- this time of year, essentially I've got a calendar and I'm, I'm putting, putting places on, uh, on weekends and, and trying to get as many places in as I possibly can over the course of the summer. So I was, oh gosh, I think I made seven or eight different scouting trips. Um, you know, three or four old areas and then, and then same amount of uh, new areas. And I didn't turn anything up. It was, uh, it was pretty grim. Uh, Let me stop you there. What do you, cause you're not a normal person, Dione. What do you define as don't turn anything up? I don't think I saw 30 deer. Um, just a small handful of bucks. And the, the biggest buck I saw may have finished out as 140 inch deer. Like, 
um, you know, nice, nice four point deer, but nothing, nothing that I would want to try and target at least. Um, you know, I'm more or less, uh, a trophy hunter. I mean, I use all the meat and I, I, I love it, but I, I really like the challenge of trying to find big animals. Uh, and, and big to me, isn't necessarily like a number of inches, but I want to find something that looks like it's old and it's, it's a dominant buck. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a rough year as far as scouting goes. Uh, and it, it had been just tough in general. Um, you know, there's just, there's not been a lot of animals the last few years. It's been pretty hard to find anything. So what, what do you attribute to the cause of that tough year? Weather, so, deer population, I mean, just probably all the above, but what's your top two or three? I think so over the last few years, it seems like areas that I'd historically seen a lot of deer in don't have anywhere near the amount of deer. And I think part of that is the drought that we'd been through for the last few years. Um, I think it changed up their habits and they started utilizing areas very differently. Um, we had that big heat dome that year and stuff was really dry, really early. And I think that changed a lot of the patterns that the deer were, were using and made it to where the things I'd done in the past that had previously been successful were, were fairly unsuccessful. And I just wasn't looking in the right places, uh, given the circumstances. So it's not just numbers are down, but it's locating the deer that are still there, but are using terrain differently or um, just not as visible in the same spots. Yep. I think deer are more dispersed when it's dry like that. I don't think you're going to see large groups of animals in any one spot just because the resource isn't there to support them. So, yeah, I think you're looking for, you know, individual deer versus a bachelor group of bucks. And I think the distance between those deer is, is more spread out. Like the concentration is very different. I've always felt like 90% of the deer are in 10% of the area or, you know, some, some ratio like that. Most of the deer you're going to find in, in select places, they're concentrated to the best areas, but I felt like these last couple of years, they've just been scattered and it's, it's small groups of deer scratching out a living wherever they can. Were you realizing this as you were scouting like by your yeah. fifth and sixth trip? Did you start like, things aren't right. I'm going to start looking in different areas or are you like not, not necessarily different areas, but like the non-obvious spots, right? Like, okay, started, like maybe they're down lower, you know, do I glass a face that I normally wouldn't expect to see deer on? Yeah, I was very aware of it and and had a number of conversations with other guys that uh, that are local here that I really respect their opinions on. And, and they were seeing the same kinds of things. Um, I was trying to change my tactics, but it was just everything I did didn't seem to work. Um hmm. It, it, it was really, it was really a brutal scouting summer for me. I, I didn't find literally almost anything. And then you're targeting hunting in October, right? Like yep. you're, this isn't, you don't have an archery tag. So this is going to be October and beyond for a rifle deer hunt. Correct. Yeah. So, um, even finding them, you're not guaranteed that they're going to be there. It's just, uh, it, it, to, to some effect, you're trying to find a deer, best case scenario um next best case scenario you're you're finding areas that have lots of animals that you can continue to try to work over during season and turn up a deer that you may or may not have missed so what from a big picture level like say you're getting into you're kind of cruising through the summer your scouting season pass through july it's august like you're you're getting closer and closer to man what am i going to do come opening day or you know the week leading to and you actually start a hunt is that do you by deep like when i hear that my head jumps to let me just go back to a spot that is a bit more tried and true even if it hasn't scouted well this summer like at least i'm gonna know the area well or kind of know more about how deer tend to use it etc is that was that your fallback or what was your as you got closer to the hunt itself what was your plan that was 100% the plan. I, and I'd scouted that specific spot. The one that I ended up hunting, I'd scouted it a few times, um, very unsuccessfully, but I've got so much knowledge in that area. And I know that even though it can be really, really hard to find deer there from time to time, 
Um, it's got escapement. It, what, what it has in spades isn't deer numbers and it isn't necessarily, you know, the average deer is really great. What it has is that it's really hard place to find all of the deer. So there's, there's pockets of it that don't lend themselves well to glassing. There's, there's pockets of it that are really remote and, and there's opportunity for a deer to get old. So that's, that's what I leaned on. Just, I know the area really, really well. I know a lot of the things that the deer favor in that area. And, um, even though I hadn't found anything there, I had a reasonable expectation that there was something good there. If I, if I worked the area long enough. Did you plan to work it any differently? Meaning, Hey, because I haven't, because it didn't scout well, I know this area. I know some of how deer use it, et cetera. Was there on one hand, there's familiarity because you have experience there, but was there any shift in the strategy or how you plan to hunt that area? Yeah. So that there's, there was two big components to that. And, and yes, I'd planned to do it differently, but what I ended up doing was, was even different from that because of what the weather did. Um, I typically don't like to move very much when I'm, when I'm hunting or scouting, if, if I'm moving, I'm not looking. And if I'm not looking, I'm not seeing everything that's there. So I typically like to post up in a spot and, and maybe cover a mile in a day on a, on a big day. Like I really want to just spend as much time as I can seeing everything that's, that's in every available spot from what I can see wherever I'm at. So, um, my plan originally was to push deeper in uh, from where I normally hunt and, and just, work little pockets that I knew about that are further in. Um, what ended up happening was <laughs> an, an unreasonable amount of snow came very early and it, and it totally changed up my plan. But my, my plan originally was to um, basically move a base in a day and, and just go farther in from where I, where I typically like to hunt. So in terms of planning in this weather you mentioned being a variable which i'm sure we'll get more into here in a minute but was this something this weather system something you're aware of meaning while we're talking about planning for one more minute did you make any your choices changes etc because you knew the storm was coming or did it more catch you off guard oh it totally blindsided me i I really (laughs) really wasn't ready for it (laughs) okay yeah um it, it was a it was a change on the fly type decision once uh once the storm came okay so we'll get more into that um so yeah let's let's and again a lot of these categories overlap so that we don't have to keep like hard boundaries here but i feel like that's a good summary somewhat of planning as we get closer into this like one of the next category ideas is managing and so it's like managing time and energy when to stay Mm -hmm. when to move how do you use terrain to your advantage, et cetera. And you've already, you know, you've talked about that, like a big day is a mile. I'm curious though, on one hand, you said, if you're moving, you're not looking. If you're not looking, you're not seeing everything that's there. Previously, you said in some of this country, it is hard to glass. So yeah, I guess break down that a little bit more in terms of how that works on this hunt. It's like, did you end up just only sticking with moving a small amount or did you, whether because of weather or what you're seeing or not seeing, end up moving more? So I, I started with, with only moving a small amount. Um, some of my favorite pockets in this area don't lend themselves well to glassing, but that's, I think, a big part of why there's good bucks there. It's You kind of have to put yourself in a in a spot where, you're not seeing the most of the picture. You're just seeing the part of the picture that the deer seem to like. And you have to be really patient because there's only little slivers of, of the area that they like to use that you can see from any one vantage. Um, so it's a patience game. You're, you're not going in there seeing deer every day. Um, I had a good buck that I killed in this area quite a few years ago, and I'd go in there and spend three days in there. And I'd see that buck one morning and one evening pretty consistently that was just kind of the routine. And, and you were, you, you, if you went in there and just spent one day there, there was a higher likelihood that you didn't see the group of bucks than there was that you did. So it's, it's a patience game hunting these types of places, but, um, it can be really fruitful if you, if you do it right. I think that's just like for some guys, 
need to process that of by by nature most of us want to spend the most time glassing the quote-unquote glassable country but it's almost backwards because if it's super open and glassable and friendly to glassing you can actually cover it more efficiently more quickly whereas what you're saying is this doesn't feel like prime glassing country per se. It's these small pockets and, you know, stuff is going to be hard to find and hard to see because of that actually almost need to spend more time there. Right. Cause it, it just, yeah. as you said, becomes this patience game. Yeah. It's, you have to be really thorough. And, um, and like I said, it's, it, it's not the most glamorous way to hunt. Um, and most people won't, won't do it. And even if they do it, they won't do it for long enough to know all of what's actually there unless they just got lucky. So, um, you know, I, I, I hunted Wyoming last year and it was, it was kind of felt like the same thing. Um, lots of people hunting the big open basins, very, very few people hunting the timbered middle country. And if, if you want to look at where a deer can get old, it's probably not where he's got a lot of guns pointed at him opening morning. So good summary, <laughs> true, true statement. <laughs> uh, so have you learned to, have you learned to enjoy that aspect of it? The challenge of patience, or do you still like, Hey, Hey, like you said, this isn't glamorous. It's do you just do it because I'll get out? <laughs> okay. That's what I'm getting at. Like, have you, do you do it simply because you know, you can be effective and you've proven that it works or have you learned to almost like, love it well in the moment it can be frustrating but i really like the process and i think that's a big uh distinguishing factor for a lot of guys that that just really really want to kill something something big but typically don't have the the i don't know stick to itness to to be effective year after year um even when things aren't going well and I'm not seeing a lot of deer, I really enjoy being out there and I enjoy the challenge. And I, I really like the idea that every time I'm hunting, I could see the biggest deer I'll ever see in, in the back of my mind. I'm, I'm like delusionally optimistic. Uh, when I've got no good reason to be, I always think I'm going to kill a giant buck. And, and I like that feeling. I like that idea that, that at any moment, something crazy could happen and it could be, you know, the, the, the biggest deer I'll ever see. Have you thought about how you've developed that attitude? Honestly, I think in, in part, I've had, I've had a lot of luck. I've had a lot of good fortune in, in finding big deer. And there's been a lot of times where I've been down on myself and things weren't going well and I let it get to me, but I, for whatever reason was able to stick with it. And then good things seem to happen if I just kept working at it. And now I've kind of gotten to the point where it's like, well, more often than not, if I stick with it, I'll find something that's that I'd be happy to take home. And it's kind of let me relax a lot. I'm not as anxious as I used to be. And, um, through experience and hard work, you've developed confidence which yeah. I think, I, yeah, we've talked about this in different ways on the podcast before, but that, that just like a snowball effect, it just feeds on yourself too. like that confidence then keeps you out there longer, keeps your attitude better and leads just to more and more success down the road. Yeah. And I mean, I can't stress enough that I, I, I love the process. Like even, even though some hunts can be really challenging and like there's times where you're really, really uncomfortable and, and wet and cold and, uh, and things are just hard and, and it's not necessarily an easy, easy place to make a living. And you're just out there more or less suffering. Um, I've, I've come to realize that's really good for me. And I really like, I really like that things are hard. If, if it was easy, it wouldn't be, I don't know. It wouldn't be what it is to me. So yeah. Enjoy it. Yeah. Simply yeah. just enjoying the process and going along with it. Yeah managing time and energy movement etc interacts or is going to overlap especially because of the weather and the conditions with one of the next categories that we're trying to break down which is just living in the backcountry like you take a backpack hunt and part of that is separate the hunting separate the tactics it's just like it's surviving for day after day on a backpack hunt 
And yeah, that becomes especially more critical with weather. So in terms of this category of living, we're, we've generally been talking about like, hey, how are you managing water, food, clothing, shelter, your comfort and survivability, et cetera. So how this weather has to begin to make a, uh, a big impact in this quote unquote category. So between staying and moving, managing time and energy and transitioning to like shelter, clothing, comfort, survivability because of this weather, how do things progress with this hunt? Probably ought to back up a little bit to before the hunt. Um, I, I had a lot going on that year. It, it had been, uh, it, it, so my, one of my kids was, uh, had, had been pretty chronically sick, um, coming into that fall and had just nonstop ear infections. And, uh, it was, it was during COVID and literally impossible to get anything done. That wasn't a, you know, life-saving surgery. So I'd had multiple hospital systems in the Valley tell me that, He's basically going to have to live with an ear infection, you know, for a few months until they reopened the hospitals. And I, I wasn't well myself. I had had a, I had a sinus infection going into that hunt, but, um, I, I'd scrambled the, the week before just didn't want my son to be unwell. I was even willing to drive out of state to, to try to get tubes put in for him so he could get over this ear infection and ended up finding a, a local, um, ear, nose and throat doctor that had his own, uh, operating room and was able to get my son taken care of literally the morning the morning I took off for that hunt he got tubes put in and was almost instantly a different little kid um then I went to the doctor's office myself and uh found out I had a a sinus and ear infection myself and got uh got antibiotics prescribed so I wasn't I wasn't super well at the beginning of this hunt unfortunately my son got taken care of and my wife gave me the all clear to go um but I was planning on being in there for seven to 10 days. And, uh, and the hunt started with uh, a little over an eight mile pack in. And I was, uh, I was really debating on, you know, what gear to take. And, and I wanted to try to stay lighter because with all the winter gear I take and, and the amount of food I had, I think my pack was close to 70 pounds. It's between 60 and 70 pounds with my rifle. I, I always carry a big spotting scope. I'm, you know, I, I, I pack a lot. Um, I want to try and stay as comfortable as I can while I'm, while I'm back in there. So I had last minute change of heart. I'd actually, uh, that same day I went into SNS archery and Rob had a, a Hilleberg tent for me. And I, I picked that up and last minute decided to take my two man trekking pole tent. Cause it was only supposed to get a half an inch to an inch of snow. Um, that was a horrible decision <laughs> come to find out, but, um, I got myself, uh, on the trail and started hiking in and about halfway in it, it started to rain and it was raining pretty hard. Um, I get back in to where I'm close to my camp and I decided to fill up, fill up all my water. So I've got, uh, I think it's a, a 12 liter, one of those big MSR dromedary bags. And then I filled up, um, uh, my platypus. I've got a three liter platypus and then I had one Nalgene bottle. So I filled everything up and I was, I was ready to stay for a while. Um, and that first night, that half inch of snow turned into, uh, three inches of snow and, and I was already pretty well soaked from the hike in. Um, so like I, I instantly had to start trying to make decisions based off of, well, if, if more weather comes, I need to, I need to manage my situation so that I can stay back here. Um, so that first day I was in there would have been October 9th and I was just trying to find something the day beforehand so I could hopefully try and get something killed opening morning. Well, that day I, uh, I got up early, went out to my glassing point and, uh, and didn't, I, I don't think I saw any deer. Um, so I spend the whole morning there and then the sun started to come out and I decided I needed to hike back to camp and, uh, and try and dry out as much, as much of my things as I could almost all my clothes were wet. And, um, with that one man trekking pole tent, it condensates pretty bad when it's that wet. So my, uh, my sleeping bag had pretty good layer of moisture on the outside of it. And it's, I don't know, it's, it's a little long in the tooth. My sleeping bag could probably use to be replaced, but, uh, it's, uh, it's not as water resistant as it used to be. And the down starts to lose loft after a few days. So I was trying to be mindful of that. And I, I, spent most of the afternoon trying to 
dry things out. The sun was out and it was, it was pretty nice that day. And, uh, yeah, I was just trying to manage my, my wet gear. When you say that, what are you doing? Like for guys who are hearing this and go, man, what, is, what does he mean by managing what gear? How is he trying to dry stuff out? Just like get, I know some of it may be basic to you, but like very practically, what are you doing? So I, I built up a little clothesline with paracord and sticks and um, it wasn't super warm, but the sun was out and there was, there was no clouds and it was, the sun was drying stuff off pretty well. And then I made a fire to try and dry out my, uh, some of my clothes. I, I was, I was sitting there in my underwear trying to dry out my pants and, <laughs> and, uh, socks and my boots as much as I could. So that, that early morning glassing, was it done precipitating? Like there was snow on the ground from overnight, but nothing was coming down during yep. your glassing yeah, it time? Had, it had, the storm had broke overnight and it was, it was pretty nice that morning, a little foggy in the morning, but nothing, nothing too bad. Going into the next day, it, I checked my inReach for the weather, and it was, again, supposed to only snow half inch to an inch, um, but that's not the most reliable, uh, especially when you're up in the mountains. The weather can kind of do its own thing sometimes, and uh, overnight, it had snowed, I think it snowed close to six inches that night where I was, um, and again, I spent... Um, I spent that next morning glassing and then, uh, that was, that would have been opening morning. And I noticed, uh, in a basin, oh, not, not too far removed from where I was, there was, uh, an outfitter camp that I'd never seen there before. And that, that kind of gave me cause for concern. Cause it's not, it's not likely that other people are going to go in there and kill the deer that I'm trying to kill. But, um, the more activity there is in there, the less likely you are to see anything. Even if elk move through there, I typically won't see the deer for a couple of days. They just, they, they really like solitude. It seems like. So the area is kind of prone to getting messed up if, if there's much going on, <laughs> but um, yeah, once again, uh, you know, all my, all my stuff's wet again at this point. I actually had to boil water that morning to pour over my boots to even get my feet in them. Um, so it's, you know, stuff's stuff's wet and, and I'm cold and I've, I've never been a, well, previously I'd never been a big fan of, uh, of packing a stove and a TP t- uh, style tent. Um, just hunting solo. It can be, it's a lot of work trying to keep a stove running. And I, I'd, I'd always thought it'd just be better to pack a bunch of extra warm clothes and, uh, Make sure you got enough food to try to fuel yourself so your body can make its own heat and uh, and just take sleeping pills and sleep longer because I'd rather not spend a couple hours every evening trying to do work to keep myself warm for the short periods of time that a stove will actually stay lit. Um, I hadn't put enough stock in the utility of being able to dry out your clothes up to that point, I guess. So do you, you said previously, like that was your mindset then. Do you have... yeah practical experience with running a stove on a similar tent now or is that just something you're interested in doing i am i actually just bought um i bought well i bought two tents um this week uh from brad brooks over at argali i got the absaroka and then i wanted to try his one person and when it comes out i'm going to get his stove also um so i'm i'm looking forward to being able to dry clothes out if this happens again yeah uh yeah, I'd, I'd always just taken it from the approach of this is a comfort item and I'm pretty comfortable being uncomfortable. Uh, but it's it's a, it can be a lot more than that in the right circumstances. If if you're wet and your things are wet and you need to dry out, it can be a it can be an important tool. What about whether it's from this hunt or just pulling from previous experience? not just this whole idea of living and backpacking, but very practically like setting up to glass in either cold, windy, wet weather. Like what, what tips, strategies, tactics do you have to be able to stay put glass effectively when the conditions are just making you want to pack up and either move or get out of there and kind of take some shelter? What, one of the things that, that's helpful for me. And it's, it seems minimal, but it, it, uh, it, it works is if, if you 
drink enough warm things, it's a lot easier to stay warm. So even when I'm not drinking coffee, there'll be times where I'll heat up water and just drink warm water. Um, keep my core temperature warm. I also pack, uh, glassing booties. So like I've got little insulated booties. Uh, Your boots are typically pretty constricting whether they feel like it or not. So if you're sitting stationary and you've got boots on, even if they're reasonably warm boots, your feet can get cold pretty easily. So a lot of times, even if you don't have glassing booties, your feet will be warmer with your boots off. Um, so that's something I try and be mindful of if it's really, really cold. Um, that giant, uh, Chamberlain down jacket from first light. That's been a really big asset for me. It's got like six flocks of geese in it. It's, it's ridiculously (laughs) warm. (laughs) Um, so that's helped me a lot. Um, yeah, I also listen to music a lot because it seems like if I have some amount of a distraction music or podcasts i can uh it's it's almost easier to stay focused um and it helps the time pass so you don't feel like you're just sitting there for hours and hours on end even if you are you that just seems random to me i like blocking my ears seems crazy (laughs) do you run both earbuds or just run one so you can use another one to hear stuff around you i'm not using earbuds i just have my phone on the, like the lowest volume setting. I'm usually so oh, okay. far away from the deer that there's no concern of them hearing me. Yeah. Okay. I gotcha. They're going to smell you before they hear your podcast. <laughs> 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 yeah, that that's too, all. That's good stuff. I've definitely used the booties fully agree and has been my experience on warm drinks, but yeah, the music and podcast just to, as you said, just to help time pass a little bit. I mean, that's what gets tough is just being able to, as we've talked about, stay patient. Uh, yeah. And that's a great thing is just to have like, on one hand, you can focus, like you're still glassing, you're still looking, you're still intentional, but you also have this little bit of a distraction for lack of a better term. Yeah. I mean, it's been, it's, it's funny how many places that can apply. I've been training a lot for the death hike and that's the only way I can run. <laughs> if I'm, if I'm running in silence, it lasts for about a mile. If, if I've got something that I can distract myself with, I can go a lot farther. Cool. Well, that's a, that's a lot of good stuff in there just on that uh, category, if you will, of living in the backcountry. So feel free to hit on anything, you know, as it, as it comes into play with the rest of the story, but technically the next category we wanted to hit was hunting the stock the approach the shot opportunity tracking like any of those aspects leading up to any sort of hunting encounter hunting success on this so again we can always go back to any other categories or points that the story lends itself to but i guess how do things progress from here for the hunt yeah so from from there i guess the best way to progress probably just go through the what happened through the next couple days on the hunt um that night we got I got absolutely destroyed with, with even more snow. Um, and now my, my sleeping bag at this point is starting to lose a little bit of loft. Um, I noticed that I'm, I'm pretty cold and I'm, I'm broke down. Like I said, I'm, I'm day three of antibiotics and, uh, just generally not feeling super well. I'm, I'm noticing I'm having a harder time keeping warm and I glass, um, that next morning would have been, the 11th I glassed, uh, for a little bit and then just kind of had to accept the fact that, um, my plan is not going to work given my state of, uh, of being in, in the fact that I can't, I can't sit still anymore. I need to move. I'm, I'm too wet to stay warm being stationary and the conditions at that point, it was probably in the twenties. And I would say on the tops of the mountains, for sure, there was a foot of snow. So looking at it critically, it's like, well, any deer that are in here are going to be feeding pretty consistently through the whole day. So even though I really like the, uh, the post up and find everything that's on one mountain, it's not necessarily the most effective way to hunt, especially where I don't have anything found. So at that point I decided I was going to move camp, um, quite a ways from where I was at and kind of hunt my way through um, the ridge system that's in this area. And, um, the whole time I wanted to be really cognizant of tracks. So even if I didn't see something, you can, you can make out tracks if you're looking for them in the snow, even on opposing hillsides at a, at a pretty good distance. So 
Um, I think you I mean, moved camp. Sorry, but on that point, like through glassing or through naked eye or both, obviously just depending glassing. on the distance. Okay. So if, I, I would, I was moving, you know, a few hundred yards glass, look for tracks, move a few hundred yards glass, look for tracks. Cause even if I didn't see an animal, if I saw somewhere where there was enough tracks, it might be worth setting up on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had moved, I moved, I ended up moving my camp. Like I said, I think close to seven miles. And, um, I'd found a couple of, uh, I think I saw, I don't know, maybe half a dozen deer in that, in that distance. Um, and one pretty good, uh, travel corridor where it seemed like a, a pretty good amount of deer were hanging out, but, um, moving through where I was, there was no real great way to glass it. So I, uh, I, I kept that in the back of my mind and, uh, made it over to the new spot and got my camp set up. And, um, at that point living was getting pretty hard. So I had to, I, I kept having to check in with myself on, look, what's, what's reasonable to stay in here. And, um, just trying to be honest with myself about, am I, am I too cold to make this a safe, uh, experience? The one nice thing from doing as many death hikes as we've done is in the back of my mind, I always have this, this easy out button where it's like, okay, I know I can hike for as long as I can, you know, as long as I can stay awake. So, um, as long as I feel physically well enough to hike, I'm not in, in any super big danger. Um, but just being honest with myself about how well I wasn't feeling and how wet and cold I was to make sure that I, uh, I was honest about when I, when I may or may not need to pull out. Um, so th- that night I, uh, I got my camp set up and again, tried to build a really big fire. I had, uh, at that point, my, my camelback was frozen and my big MSR dromedary bag was frozen. And all I had for water was, uh, was my Nalgene and I was melting snow to keep it filled. Cause I had nothing else to, um, really get water with. And, um, I kind of came to the conclusion that I needed to spend that evening trying to eat as much as I could to keep myself fueled so I could stay warm and trying to make sure I drank as much water as I could. Cause I knew I wasn't drinking enough throughout the day. And that was part of what was contributing to my not feeling very well. Um, so that night I cooked water, ate food. And, uh, and when I put in for bed, I made sure to boil, um, a bunch of water, fill up my Nalgene. And then I was, uh, I was moving that around in my sleeping bag, trying to stay warm. So it's a pretty good tactic. If you're, if you're ever really, really cold, you can boil water, put it in your Nalgene and then put it next to your body and it'll keep you warm for a few hours. And if it's super cold and you're having a hard time sleeping, you can just repeat that throughout the night. That was, uh, that was my program for the night. Just try and dry out and keep warm that next morning. Um, I just wanted to work through and get back to that basin where I'd seen, uh, that, that traffic of deer basically just seemed like the best option I had at the time. And it's somewhere that I've looked at for years. It doesn't lend itself very well to glassing. Um, it's really hard to glass. It's just really thick timber and there's not a bunch of good angles to look at it from, but it's got all the things that I, I picture that a deer would want, um, as far as feed escapement, um, it doesn't lend itself well to glassing, which, which is a, a good thing in my mind. And, uh, with the conditions, how they were, I figured I could set up at a couple spots. And if there was deer in there, I wouldn't have to stay there for super long before I'd find them. Um, so like I said, I worked my way over. It was probably a couple miles away from camp and I, uh, waited till sun came up and I was just glassing all the basins on the way over to it. Uh, when the weather's like that and it's that cold, there's no, it's not like you've got this small window of time in the morning and in the evening, the whole day can be good hunting if it's, if it's cold enough. So, um, I worked my way over and got set up, um, in a saddle that I could kind of view uh, a good chunk of this basin from, and almost immediately I saw a deer. Um, he was about 1300 yards away from where I spotted him. And, uh, and with, with 10 power binoculars, I could tell he had a good frame. And my kind of rule of thumb is if, if you can put a good frame on a deer, a thousand plus yards with binoculars, it's, it's probably a deer worth looking at. So 
I pulled my spotting scope out and got set up on him and, and I could instantly tell he had a huge frame. He was, he was the kind of buck I wanted to kill. I, I had no idea what he scored. I, I couldn't tell what his forks looked like at first, but almost instantly registered as like, okay, this is a shooter. So I took a couple minutes, uh, got a better look at him, confirmed everything I'd thought. And then I started looking at Onyx, trying to figure out what my approach should be. Um, the way the basin lays out, there's there's a little bit of a finger ridge that I could work down and get closer to him. But um, I could only get about 400 yards closer to him before it cliffed out. And there really wasn't any good way to get closer. The only other option would be to loop around the entire basin and come in on him. And th this the knob he was on was kind of domed. So the only play I'd have if I was to go about it that way would be to come in from the top try and find his tracks and then work in on his tracks, but it would have ended up being, you know, sub 80 yard opportunity if, if at all. And the likelihood of me being able to do that was essentially zero. Um, had I been feeling better and had the conditions been better, uh, I would have, I would have just sat there and watched him and waited for another day and tried to find a more, um, I, I some opportunity where there's a higher likelihood of success. I don't like, I don't like shooting a deer right now because I feel like I have to, I would way rather take another day and wait for a high odds or a high probability opportunity. Um, but I didn't feel like I had another day in me. Uh, I honestly think that that was, you know, that, that was the end of the road for how long I would have been able to stay in there and stay healthy. So I told myself, okay, I'm going to move down and we'll see what happens. I was hoping that he would feed closer in. Um, there was an opening in the hillside that looked like it had good feed on it that would have put him at about 700 yards. And that was my, my best case scenario. Hope this deer presents that opportunity. Um, so I decided to just go ahead and commit and I dropped down the, the ridge line and it put me at 900 yards, uh, roughly 900 yards away from where he originally was. In the process of dropping down, that deer fed into the timber and I completely lost him. I couldn't see him at all. So I get down to this point where I'm now 900 yards away from where he was and the deer's not there. Um, and I've seen this before. So I, I knew I just had to be patient. And I sat there for two hours, just gritting through the timber, trying to look for pieces of a deer. Um, like I said, after two hours, he finally, uh, I saw, I saw part of his rump, some snow, uh, got, well, what was it? It's you no know, snow fell on him later, but yeah, I could, I could see him working through the trees, just kind of feeding around. He wasn't, he wasn't really moving a whole bunch. He was just kind of milling around feeding. Um, so I set up on him and just, and just waited. And, uh, he kind of had a routine that he was doing. Every 45 minutes, he would, uh, he would get up and feed in a, in a small circle. It might've been like a, a 50 to 80 yard loop that he would do. And then he would go and lay down in the same bed for about 45 minutes. And then he'd do this, this loop again. And I sat there and watched him for close to three hours. Um, the whole time I was, I was paying attention to what, what the environmental conditions were doing. There was, you know, a pretty, well, an incredibly stable, uh, Canyon wind. And then there was a pretty consistent up thermal on his side of the hill. And, uh, and I had already, as soon as I got there, I set up and made a shooting position. I, I moved a bunch of rocks around or I dug out the snow, moved a bunch of rocks around and made a really, really comfortable position where I had that whole hillside kind of, uh, available to me without having to move my rifle around much. One of the things I think that's that's really, really important if you're going to do any kind of long range shot is to not make anything rushed and to have a really good position built up. So if I'm going to shoot at an animal, my position's at least as good as if I'm going to shoot at a target. Um, so I had that all, all set up beforehand. And after watching him for three hours, I kind of came to the conclusion that this is what this deer is going to do all day. And there's almost no likelihood that he's going to move down any closer and give me an opportunity that I'd rather have. Um, that said, I shoot a lot and practice a lot and, and don't advocate or like shooting that far, but, um, there was a pocket in the trees that he was pretty consistently stopping in when he was doing his little feeding routine. 
and I was able to get a good range on it. It was, uh, it was right at 900 yards. And I just decided that, okay, when, when he starts moving around in his bed, like he's going to get up, I'll, uh, I'll set up my spotting scope with my camera and I'll just hit record and I'll go get on the rifle. And if everything feels perfect, then I'll, then I'll take him. And, uh, sure enough, I, I see him start to shift around in his bed, like he's going to get up and I hit record and I move over and get on the rifle. And, um, he, uh, he, he mills around a little bit and then snow ended up falling on him and he kind of jumped and I thought, Oh shoot, now he's not gonna, now he's not going to go into his opening, but sure enough, he, he looped back around and, and stopped right perfectly in this little window in the timber. And, uh, and I shot him and he, <laughs> and he dropped. So, um, I was able to get back. I watched the impact through my rifle and, uh, and I got back on the, the camera on my, my spotting scope and watched it again and fortunately just dumped him and he slid down the hill. Um, so uh, that was, that was a relief at least. And, uh, you know, at this, at this point I'm thinking like, Oh gosh, uh, now I've got this deer down where my camp's at is, uh, is close to 17 miles away from my truck. Jeez. And, uh, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not feeling incredibly well, but I'd actually been, uh, talking with our friend, uh, Christian, and, uh, I had found a, another buck that I thought he'd be happy to shoot in, uh, in that area. He was planning on hunting a different spot. And, uh, and I sent him an inreach message the day before. And I'm like, Hey, why don't you come, why don't you come up and, uh, camp with me? There's this other buck that I'm, I'm not interested in, but, uh, you know, I think you'd, you'd like him. And, uh, and we'd been messaging that morning and we're planning on meeting up, uh, sometime in the middle of the day. And I, you know, when I found that deer, I'd, I'd messaged him that, Hey, I'm, I'm on a buck. If, you know, if you don't see me, don't worry about it. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to stay on this buck for long as I can. And, uh, you know, he of course messaged me that he's, he was on his way up. And then, uh, once I shot the buck, I'd sent him another message. I'm like, Hey, I got, I killed the buck. Don't plan on seeing me till, till way late tonight. And he instantly responded back. He's like, uh, uh, no worries, man. I'll, I'll be there in 20 minutes. And I'm like, well, what does, what does that mean? Like, are you, are you going to come here to where I'm at in 20 minutes? Or are you like going to be on the mountain or in 20 minutes? <laughs> and I was really unsure, but I'm like, well, I, I'm going to need to eat something anyways. And, um, try and try and put down some calories before I have this big effort. So I, I'll hang out here. <laughs> and, and sure enough, about 20 minutes later, I can see Christian running down the hill and I've never been so happy in my life. <laughs> yeah. He had, uh, he had, a change of, a change of clothes and some gators for me. And, uh, I've never been so happy to be dry, but, uh, yeah, he showed up and, and we made a plan for how to get, get over to the buck and, uh, and, and we get over to him and, um, boy, was I surprised. He was, he was actually a lot bigger than, than I even thought he was. Um, so that was, that was another, another great point, but, um, we, we get him cut up and in, in my delirious state, I, I kind of planned our, our hike out and, uh, we ended up, we ended up packing him about a mile and a half farther than we had to, cause I wasn't the best route picker that day, but, um, yeah, we got him, we got him cut up and, and packed most of the way back to camp that night. And I think it was around 11 or so. And we just decided like, Hey, we're, we're close enough. We're on the main Ridgeland. Let's just dump him here get to camp, um, you know, try and get, get some more food and us get to bed and then, uh, and then we'll get him tomorrow. We'll hunt our way back to him tomorrow. So try and find that other buck for Christian and, uh, and then, then we can work on getting him packed out. So that's kind of how that, that section of it went. And fortunately, um, there was another route getting into that area and, uh, and Christian's truck was less than half the distance back to it. Yeah, there's a lot in there um, that I'd love to pull from, but I also feel like I can make it a three-hour conversation. The when you mentioned you could have saved a mile and a half, was that just purely a um, like you said, you're kind of delirious, obviously tired, not fully there mentally and physically? Was that just that and like a bad decision, or was there something where you look back now and there's? I guess what I'm getting at is there a lesson to pull or like communicate from that, or it was just kind of a poor decision and a weird mind state? It was a hundred percent a bad decision. <laughs> it was <laughs> it was a hundred percent 
me just saying, okay, this is what we're going to do and not, not pulling the group. <laughs> Cause yeah. had, had Christian had two seconds to think about it before I had committed us to it. Uh, after the fact, he's like, you know, it would have been a lot faster to go that way. And I, I didn't even realize it till he pointed it out. <laughs> but um, yeah, I just, um, I, I, I wasn't thinking as much as I was, uh, was just doing. And I guess I, I probably should have put more thought into it. But at that point I would, I was just ready to do anything other than sit still on a mountain. Mm-hmm. Dang. Did, this is probably jumping ahead. Did you guys end up pursuing a buck for Christian the next day or did you end up filling two tags? So we ended up um, hunting that morning and we found some deer, but not the buck that I'd seen uh, the day previous. And um, I, I was in pretty rough shape at this point and Christian honestly felt sorry for me keeping me in there a, a day longer. Um, and he, he, he told me, he's like, Hey man, let's just, let's just get out of here and I'll go back to the original spot. I was planning on going and, uh, and he helped me get my buck out and we went and I bought him, I bought him lunch and, uh, got warmed up and, uh, and then he, he went on his way and I went, I went home. So He's a super super good friend. (laughs) (laughs) Very indebted to him for that. Yeah. So you skip, you know, skipping over details of yeah, we packed up, we went home. That all that's good. But in terms of the pack out strategy, you now have two guys. You said the the vehicle was closer, but still sounds like a pretty long pack out. Was there anything you had to do strategically there? I just don't want to skip over any details of you know the pack out strategy itself it was pretty straightforward um i mean it was a a good chunk of it was on trail and it was almost entirely downhill so um it it was fairly uneventful but it was really nice to split the load i've um you know i I hunt alone most of the time and um you know most of the time it's try and get it out in one trip because it's it's faster um than making multiple trips to get an animal out so it was uh, it was really welcome to have the help, and it's a lot easier to move when you don't have a whole deer on your back. We sometimes give you a hard time, Joni, for all the crap that you pack. As you said, yes. you like to be comfortable. Um, I will say though, like when I see you with pack out photos, like when you're bringing a deer out, meat out, etc., like I can tell that you're intentional in terms of how you load your pack. Um, yes, I just. From your perspective, because these are topics obviously we talk about, but from your perspective, like what have you learned in terms of making a load feel fit, perform better in terms of how you load the pack, how you position meat, how you secure head and horns, that type of thing? It's kind of opposite what a lot of guys do when they're hunting really, really remote, but I like to leave bone in on the quarters. Um, The stability well for one i the the load has a structure if you leave the bones in you have some amount of structure so you're able to load it on the frame in a way where you can you can more or less call where where it sits on the frame um if if you've got a crib you can get stuff tight enough with with boned out meat that it doesn't shift around much but i like the way that i can situate the load on my frame um i typically pack it as uh, hind quarter front quarter per game bag and uh, I'll run uh, hind quarter front quarter pair uh, with the with the hawk down so with the bone like the the knee bone down on the lower part of the frame for the for the bag that's closest to the frame and then I'll stack the other hind quarter front quarter opposite of that um and I, I try and keep a couple inches up from the bottom of the frame. So the loads, the loads pretty like I've got like almost a, a, a bundle of meat. That's like semi square. It's not, it's not protruding out or, you know, obnoxiously shaped. It's, it's pretty evenly spaced across the frame and I've got it situated, uh, you know, reasonably high, as high as I can, I can get it to ride. And then from there I'll pack, um, you know, all my loose meat around um the top and strap that down so i've i've kind of situated in a way where the the weight is is tight to the frame and high 
and then I'll bundle up um, the cape and put it in a game bag. And oftentimes I'll put it in a game bag, then a trash bag and put it in the top of the bag itself. So I can secure it in the bag with the roll top. And, uh, and from there, I, you know, depending on how trafficked the area is, it, it carries better with the head horns up. But if I'm in an area where there's a lot of people, I always try and put, put it antlers down um, just so nobody shoots at me. And then I'm a big fan of the orange lids um, just because there's, you know, there's people out there who are less discerning and will shoot anything. <laughs> so I, I try and be mindful of that. Um, but yeah, that's, I, I, I prefer to pack it that way because it just seems to shift around less. And even though you're carrying more weight, that load stability, when you have a really tight load, it's less fatiguing. Yeah, hundred percent. You can certainly uh, drastically change how that packs pack out's going to go by how just taking time and loading it correctly. Yeah, I used to be a lot less discerning, but um, as, as I get older, it's uh, it's it's really important, and I put a lot of effort into making sure I've got a tight pack. When you look back at this hunt now, Dioni, what what are some takeaways? Whether that's lessons learned, just highlights. Yeah, just what comes to mind if you reflect. I mean, this was, you know, going on two and a half years ago. I'm just curious for you personally, like what are some takeaways or achievements or lessons or anything of the sort? I think one of the biggest takeaways for me going into it was I had a lot of opportunities where I could have said this is too hard and I need to I need to quit and I was really miserable for the greatest percentage of this hunt. Like I was really, really cold and and didn't feel well. Um, And I had, I had enough stuff going on at home that it would have been easy to say, Oh man, well, I'll just, I'll come back when the weather's nicer, you know, it didn't work out this year. So one of the things I'm proudest of was just sticking with it. And, and even though I got thrown numerous curveballs and starting out, nothing looked like it was going to be very fruitful and uh and and just everything was generally pretty hard about this hunt um just the fact that i stuck with it i i'm i feel like that went well and i think one of the things that's helped me a lot is realizing just how capable not not just myself but most people are and and i'm so grateful for the death hike for that because uh it's it's crazy to look back on a hunt where i traveled that much distance and and um, you know, so much went wrong and say, well, at any point I've got, I've got this easy button of, I'll just walk out. I don't care how far it is. If, if I, if I feel healthy ish, um, I, I can walk 30 something miles in a day. You know, it's the, the, a lot of the excuses disappear when you realize what you're actually able to do and, and being experienced and knowing that, okay, well, I can drink a bunch of warm water and I'll get warm. Like I may not feel well, my feet might still be really, really cold and I might be very uncomfortable, but, um, I'm not in danger and, and being honest with yourself about, okay, when you are actually in danger, that's when you need to know to pull the plug. But knowing that, well, if I, you know, boil water and put it next to my body, I'll warm up. And, um, you know, if I, if I don't feel well, then I'll get back to camp and I'll rest. But, looking for opportunities to make it work instead of reasons why it won't. I think it's a big thing that a lot of people, not a lot, but some, some people may not do. Uh, I'd say 90% of people <laughs> like focus on the negatives and, and have a, you know, it's, it's harder to have a positive confident outlook than it is to, you know, it's very easy to get down and negative and hike out. That's why a lot of people leave hunts unsuccessful. Well, that is a great way to cap it, guys. What a cool story, a cool hunt, and a great episode to have as part of this Backpack Hunt Breakdown series. Tune in next week. We do have another episode in this series that we'll be releasing on Wednesday. Between now and then, we are going to release a bonus episode this Friday, as well as a Monday Minute on the following Monday. So if you want to make sure you receive those episodes and all future episodes, just hit subscribe or follow in your podcast app, or you can always go to exomountgear.com forward slash podcast to find out how to subscribe, access all previous episodes, and much more. While you're on that page, we also are doing a giveaway this month in July of 2023. 
our friends at Outdoor Vitals have given us a Ventus hoodie to give away. So again, just go to exomountgear.com forward slash podcast. You can enter that giveaway, subscribe to the podcast, and find all previous episodes right there, as well as contact us if you have any questions, comments, or feedback. I appreciate you guys doing that, and we'll talk to you soon.